Hi, welcome to Talking in Bed. I'm your host, Jen, and this is an opinion-based podcast. I share my thoughts about whatever's on my mind, and sometimes you might disagree with my opinion, or you might think I'm misinformed or ill-informed. If you ever feel frustrated by that, just remember that this is not a research-based piece of journalism. I'm just a woman with an opinion and a microphone. Hope you enjoy! Today in Germany, where I am in Bavaria, it is 26 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 3 Celsius. So I don't know what the average temperatures for this area are like historically. You know, when we think of like southern Germany, you tend to think of something that's pretty snowy and, um, you know, whatever, like skiing. I don't live near the Alps, so it's not super far south. It's more the middle of the country. <laughs> Why don't I tell you my address too? Uh, but anyway, so it is cold out. It's very cold. And um, I just realized that I left my bedroom window open. <laughs> it's probably really cold in my room. And um, when I woke up today, everything was like frosty looking. So n- it's definitely snowed. It's sort of, there's like a wispy snow coming and going throughout the day so far. Um, but everything has a nice frost to it, you know. N- now, there's different types of frost. I would say that this is probably a mix of actual snow and frost. So there's two types of frosts that I'm aware of. One is called rime frost, R-I-M-E. And the other is called hoar frost, H-O-A-R, which... I learned about that on the Weather Channel app, which is a very good app. I don't use it as often anymore. I use the AccuWeather app. And um, when the guy, like the Weather Channel has these really informative videos about weather events that are coming or conditions or something. And the guy had to spell it out, spell out horror frost because obviously, (laughs) for obvious reasons. Now there's different, uh, there are slight differences between rhyme and horror frost. I think it has to do with, um, uh, the temperature or kind of where the frost settles. It's something like that. I, I looked it up recently, but I can't remember right now. So we've either got some rime or horror frost going on and I think some actual snow, but it adds a really nice, you know, it just changes that, um, that heavy brown color of, you know, after the leaves have fallen and fall, uh, you have this, brown unless it snows and then it kind of it lightens things up you know it makes the world look a little bit brighter because the sun obviously reflects off the snow a little more so I think that's why I like snow and uh, I don't really understand it when people get upset about snow I understand it makes it difficult you know it's obviously difficult to drive in snow and Trust me, I went to school in Massachusetts and I'm from New York, so I have dug my car out of heaps of snow. And it is it is backbreaking work. It's really annoying, especially if you have to drive to work after that. Um, so I know the feeling. <laughs> but uh, the kind of the visual experience of snow is really uh, unique to me and so the past, and I know I'm not alone. I know a lot of people really appreciate the kind of the beauty of snow. I mean, it's a completely unique uh, thing and it doesn't happen everywhere in the world, you know, just as going to the rainforest is unique, I'm sure, whatever's left of it, you know. And um, so I really appreciate waking up to at least I don't have to have six, six feet, six feet of snow would be a lot. I don't have to wake up to two feet of snow. I don't know what that is in metric. Sorry, guys. Uh, I'm happy to have some frostiness and like an inch of snow. That's good. That's good for me. Um, and oh my God, where was I? (laughs) You know, so the past couple of years in Germany and New York, there has not been much snow. And that's very unusual. It, of course, conjures to mind like 
oh my god like we're seeing the change happening the climate change that we've heard about here it is it's happening like winter is not as snowy anymore or not snowy at all you know in uh the northeast in december just last month um the northeast had its first what you could call a nor'easter like a big snowstorm that it's had in four years four years it hasn't had a big i mean last winter in my hometown they got almost no snow which is it's strange and it's not good for the ecosystem i don't know everything about how snow affects the ecosystem but i'm certain that it does you know snow is not like an anomaly that plays no role it plays a role and here's one role that it might play uh at the also last month in germany we had a really good snowstorm it left maybe four inches on the ground it was it was a nice heavy snowstorm and the snow lasted for maybe a week, I would say, and then there were piles of snow that had been shoveled, you know, kind of hanging around longer than that. So it was substantial. And I uh, I work night shift in here in Germany, and I bike to work at night. And I bike to work in the middle of the night, actually. And I live in quite... Uh, it's sort of suburban it's suburban but it is also fairly rural so there's a lot of um farm fields and there's horse farms around it's very nice and uh I ride my bike past a field at night which really scared me for a long time because I've been pretty afraid of the dark even like long into adulthood I've been afraid of the dark and biking at night has really it's helped me deal with my fear of the dark, certainly. But something that I noticed when the field was covered in snow is that I could see the rabbits at night. So there are the Germany has pretty big rabbits. They're not hares. I don't think they might be hares, uh, but whatever, some kind of a, a rabbit or a hare, big ones. And of course, if there's no snow, the rabbits blend in I can't see them and then when it, there was snow I thought oh this must be how birds of prey like hunt at night this is how they find the rabbits in the winter time when food is a little more scarce I guess um so that is just one way that I think snow might play a role in the ecosystem is that it helps you know that circle of life can continue I did go and close my bedroom window and now I can't quite remember where I left off but uh I think I was talking about the bird the rabbits in the field or something and um so I have had this theory and it's my own personal theory it is based on nothing but my own anecdotal observations I do not think I'm not a scientist in any sense of the word uh and I'm a social scientist <laughs> I studied sociology and anthropology so for whatever that's worth um but my anecdotal observation that I have made in the past year is that temperatures were kind of normal, at least where I am. Summer was mild, you know, not um, not drastically hot. We might have had a couple of hot days, but nothing. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was one particular week several years ago, maybe three years ago, where uh, it was ungodly hot. It was like, I don't know, over 95 degrees in Germany. So I know that's not hot for a lot of people. That's getting into like, in Celsius, it's like, you know, over 38 degrees, let's say. It's hot for Germany. I know that there are places in, you know, deserty areas where, of course, it gets much hotter. 
Um, and I, I heard like headlines from then like Europe is in hell and the following summer, there were a couple of days that were really bad, but it wasn't quite as bad. And, and they kind of were reiterating that Europe is in hell because Paris was very hot, you know, kind of varying places were overly hot, let's say. And of course that is concerning, you know, and, um, this past summer in Germany, at least in my experience, it was fine. It was very normal temperatures, you know, let's say mid to high twenties Celsius. So maybe staying in the eighties range Fahrenheit through most of the summer, uh, with kind of peaks and dips, of course. And fall here was pretty normal. Maybe not as chilly as it could have been, but, you know, all things considered, it was normaler. And it's given rise to a personal belief that I am holding that because of the slight drop in CO2 this past year from people not going out as often, planes not flying as often, no cruises, um, you know, just general car traffic decreasing significantly and even, um, you know, factories kind of shutting down for a period of time at least. Uh, I have this belief that like the climate was able to maybe slightly adjust itself. I don't, I don't know. There's a, there's nothing but blanks in my knowledge when it comes to weather and climate change. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So, uh, we've been, I've been talking about the Victorian period lately. And I'm feeling kind of interested in that. And something that I came across, uh, which I had heard about in the past is the Little Ice Age. So the Little Ice Age took place have to uh, <laughs> from oh god hold on hold on hold on uh it took place from like 1350 to like 1850 something like that i can't find the exact dates right now but um it was around there the little ice age ended in the latter half of the 19th century or early 20th century so somewhere around there and it it is what it was. It was a period of cooling. And when I read about, you know, I had that in my head and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That would be kind of a, a cool topic. And then I saw on Reddit uh, that the polar vortex had broken. And that sounds like a really bad thing. That sounds like, oh, shit, that doesn't sound good. That's <laughs> Is that like it? Are we, you know, is this the end of it? And um, so I... I I must have clicked on the article, but I, I didn't, it was very technical and I didn't really understand what it was saying. There were a lot of graphs and I kind of got what they were talking about, but not tremendously. My general understanding of the polar vortex is that it uh, sits on top of the planet, kind of, you know, whatever floating above. There's different like layers of atmosphere and it sits in the atmosphere like the stratosphere like above us like up where planes fly that's where so about 30,000 feet uh from earth that's where the polar vortex is I believe that's I'm I'm trying to work without the source right now we will get into some sources but uh, and it basically is a circle and it swirls around and it kind of circulates this cold air in the Arctic. And, um, because of something called the SSW, I can only think of the, um, the acronym. It's something like a strata. Are they going to, oh shit, the SSW. Oh, sudden stratospheric warming. And it's 
warm air that moves up toward the polar vortex and it kind of nudges it and pushes it because obviously the two are conflicting temperatures and so if it nudges it a bit this is where I'm going to get a little shaky we'll see what the article says if it nudges it a bit the the polar vortex becomes wavy and if it nudges it if it moves it out of the way then the polar vortex breaks its formation its circular formation and it becomes really wavy and the waves bring arctic air down to us you know in the northern hemisphere generally and um so i'm not sure how that i have heard that i think that is kind of how we get cold winters and stuff because of right because of arctic air coming down to canada and the scandinavian countries and stuff and then you know a little bit less in Germany and Austria and uh, New York and stuff and then even less as you move further south so I'm not sure how this particular event relates to just when whenever that time period was that we had everything was fine right maybe before uh, industrialization was really significant when everything was just totally cool this is how the planet should be functioning weather-wise but um, anyway, so we are now I don't know if that obviously things are always building in when it comes to weather. It's not like anything stops. So it could be that I <laughs> have been observing some aspects of the polar vortex and, um, you know, and now here it is because in Spain recently they got dumped on with snow and that hasn't happened for 50 years there. So they're scrambling to try and deal with snow that they have, I would guess, not much uh, equipment to deal with it. You know, I don't even think they have snow shovels. What would they have them for? You know, um, so... It, you know, like the airport is just totally closed. The trains aren't going anywhere. So that is interesting to see that. So this is a, a cold weather event that happened in a place that I don't know if it used to snow in Spain in like the beginning of the 20th century. I don't know about that. But at least since, 19, since the 1960s, it hasn't snowed. So that is explained by the polar vortex. So let's look at the polar vortex. And I'm reading from the CNN weather, you know, I'm reading from CNN, the weather section. And this is a, a article called The Polar Vortex May Be on Its Way by Allison Chinchar, who's a CNN meteorologist. This was published on January 8th. And I want to say it was yesterday that I read the thing on Reddit saying that the polar vortex had, in fact, broken. So this may be a little bit out of date. Uh, actually, I want to see if they have a more uh, up-to-date article then. So there's nothing more recent on the CNN site about the polar vortex. I think this article will give us the information we need. Um so, the polar vortex appears to be on the move. That's because stratospheric warming is occurring at high altitudes above the North Pole, resulting in a spike in temperatures at the North Pole. So, it's warmer at the North Pole. That, in turn, could result in bitter cold air pushing southward into the United States and lots of other places <laughs> without a, within a couple of weeks. Though where exactly that Arctic air will swoop down and for how long remains uncertain, the polar vortex is simply a low-pressure system that swirls cold air around the polar regions of the globe, but the system can sometimes move off the North Pole. In doing so, it releases cold air much farther south in regions such as North America and Europe. Uh, the polar vortex is located in the stratosphere, about 18 miles above Earth's surface, which is well above the jet stream, 
where planes fly and where most uh, weather occurs, so even higher than what I had said. But agitations and disruptions to the flow and location of the polar vortex, like what we are seeing to the start of 2021, can influence the movement of air and weather below it. The scientists are closely watching current events for clues as to when and where the impacts will occur. What is the polar vortex? Although the term polar vortex has become trendy on social media in recent years, the concept is not new. It is a staple for the polar regions every year. Some winters, it remains fairly unperturbed. Other winters, like this one, it can be severely disrupted or weakened. So that tells us that the cold weather that we traditionally associate with, um, you know, regions in the northern hemisphere are not, they're not necessarily getting the cold weather from the polar vortex. I don't know that it's going to address that specifically. You know, that gets into a different thing entirely, it would seem. Uh, says Jason Furtado, an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma School of Meteorology. Understanding what is happening with the polar vortex is one of several features in our climate that helps meteorologists understand what to expect for winter weather over the next two to six weeks. When the polar low pressure system is strong, it keeps the jet stream traveling around Earth in a very circular path and keeps Arctic air bundled up close to the pole. But when that system is weakened, parts of the vortex break off and become elongated, resulting in cold air shifting southward. When that low pressure system is weaker, the jet stream also does not have enough strength to maintain its usual path. It is that disruption in the jet stream that has a direct correlation to our weather closer to the surface. So they have a graphic of the planet and it has the undisturbed polar vortex, which is a kind of a circular shape over, you know, that kind of capping. It's a yarmulke for planet Earth, basically. (laughs) And then, um... It's almost like as if a yoke were to break and the lines become wavy and the the air pours down, but not, it's, you know, it has like a limit to where it's going to pour to, but that's basically what it looks like. When the uh, stratospheric polar vortex is strong, the jet stream tends to move further north, which keeps the colder in the Arctic and allows relatively milder conditions across much of the U.S. and Eurasia. A common reason the polar vortex leaves its usual location is due to a sudden shift of hotter air, known as a sudden stratospheric warming, or SSW. This weakens the polar vortex vortex and allows it to move. When the polar vortex is weak or an SSW event occurs, then the jet stream will tend to be weakened, uh, move further south, and become wavier. The effect of these changes is for warmer than normal air to move into the Arctic, colder weather to enter North America and Eurasia, and more extreme weather and storms overall in the middle latitudes. Um... So I feel like I could go on, but, you know, well, let's see how climate change plays a role. If you have a warming Earth, then it would only make sense for more frequent sudden stratospheric warming events to occur, right? The answer is complex, mostly because no one lives at the North Pole other than Santa, which they did write. And I think that's nice that they wrote that, (laughs) which makes long term historical weather data very hard to come by. But that. This doesn't mean climate change isn't impacting the polar vortex. We know from observations that the Arctic region is warming at a much faster rate than other parts of the globe. We call this Arctic amplification. The impact of Arctic amplification is twofold. First, since the Arctic is getting warmer, when cold air outbreaks occur in North America and Eurasia, they aren't as cold as they were decades ago. The second effect though currently debated in the science community, is that a warmer Arctic is also making the stratospheric polar vortex weaker on the average. This is why, in theory, a weaker polar vortex should be easier to disrupt, allowing for more frequent SSW events. The takeaway, even though a warming planet may mean the overall number of snowstorms across the globe may decrease, The ones that do happen could produce much larger snowfall accumulations. 
so why am I talking about all of that? It's because of the Little Ice Age. <laughs> because uh, the Little Ice Age was a cooling period. And um, when I started reading about it, I thought, okay, so Ice Ages, this Ice Age was preceded by a medieval warm period. And I thought, hmm, well, that kind of, you know, that sounds like something that someone who doesn't believe in climate change might say, well, it's normal for the earth to have warming and cooling periods that happened long before, you know, industrial industrializations and when humans were still on the planet. So it, I would say that information like that could be used to discredit um, the reality of climate change and that it is this present climate change that we are experiencing is uh, affected, you know, or at least accelerated by humans. So let's learn a little bit about the Little Ice Age. The uh, Little Ice Age, otherwise known as LIA, was a period of cooling that, I'm working from the Wikipedia, by the way, uh, was a period of cooling that occurred after the medieval warm period. Although it was not a true ice age, the term was introduced into scientific literature by uh, Francois E. Mattis in 1939. I need a little water. It has been conventionally defined as a period extending from the 16th to the 19th centuries, but some experts prefer an alternative time span from about uh, 1300 to about 1850. I was not far off. <laughs> the NASA Earth Obser Observatory notes three particularly cold interview. Oh my god, intervals. One beginning around six, about 1650, another about 1770, and the last in 1850, all separated by intervals of slight warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Third Assessment Report considered the timing in areas affected by the Little Ice Age suggested largely independent regional climate changes rather than a globally synchronous increased glaciation. At most, there was modest cooling of the northern hemisphere during the period. So that is also something that I read because I thought, okay, so how do you know, that sounds like it could be discrediting climate change, as I said. So what do scientists say about that? And the basic idea is that the Little Ice Age occurred in particular places in the Northern Hemisphere uh, and wasn't all at the same time, whereas the climate change that we're experiencing now is happening all at the same time across the planet. So it's like a you know, a lot of, you know, the flooding that we've seen, um, exorbitantly hot temperatures in places that are warm, but are getting too warm, you know. Several causes have been proposed for the Little Ice Age, that is. Cyclical lows in solar radiation, heightened volcanic activity, changes in the ocean circulation, Variations in Earth's orbit and axial tilt, orbital forcing. Oh my god, orbital forcing. Wow. Inherent variability in global climate and decreases in the human population, for example, from the Black Death and the epidemics emerging in the Americas upon European contact. Yikes. Areas involved. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Third Assessment Report of 2001 described the areas affected. Evidence from mountain glaciers does suggest increased glaciation in a number of widely spread regions outside Europe prior to the 20th century, including Alaska, New Zealand, and Pat Patagonia. 
However, the timing of maximum glacial advances in these regions differs considerably, suggesting that they may represent largely independent regional climate changes, not a globally synchronous increased glaciation. Thus, current evidence does not support globally synchronous periods of anomalous cold or warmth over this period interval, and the conventional terms of Little Ice Age and Medieval Warm Period appear to have limited utility in describing trends in hemispheric or global mean temperature changes in past centuries. Uh, viewed hemispherically, the Little Ice Age can only be considered as a modest cooling of the northern hemisphere during this period of less than one degree Celsius relative to late 20th century levels. Now your eyes might be glazing over a little bit. <laughs> it's a lot of technical talk and I am going to skip over what looks to be even more technical talk about the medieval warm period because we're not actually that. Um, I might do the medieval warm period afterward. Uh, I We talked about the dating. They do have dating as one section, but I think we got the idea. Uh, then they have geophysical and social impact by region. Um, social impact. Let's see. Now, what I'm interested in them talking about... Hmm... This is how I first heard about the Little Ice Age. I heard about it because of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And what I had read is that this whole concept of like a cold and snowy Christmas was because of the Little Ice Age. So the suggestion was that Dickens would have grown up at the end of the Little Ice Age or, you know, sometime around the end of the Ice Age. And so he would have been really familiar. That would have been something that he grew up with was cold, cold and snowy winters in England. And additionally, um, there's a painting that I love called... Um, Hunters in the Wood by Peter. Oh my. You have to give me a second. Um, Jaeger M. Vault. I think that's what it's called. Peter Bruegel. Oh, I'm going to have to do a little. <laughs> I have to find this painting. Hold on. Okay, I wasn't far off. Um, the painter is Peter Bruegel, the elder, and the painting is called Hunters in the Snow, Winter, because he did um, like a Four Seasons series. And it's one of my favorite paintings. It's just a beautiful, snowy um, picture, and it has a foreground, and it kind of moves out into this lovely countryside where there's people ice skating, and it it. This picture just gives me a lot of peace. It brings me some sense of serenity. And um, that the suggestion is that that painting was also largely influenced by the Little Ice Age. Damn it, I just got rid of that. Oh, that's so annoying because I just got rid of it and I didn't look at when it was painted. Oh. <clears throat> You'll have to wait a minute. Do you think that I could just get a fucking time period on when this thing was painted? Do you think that maybe that would be nice? Jesus Christ. 1565. It's crazy. That's so old. Wow. Um. So really, de you know, smack dab in the middle of this cold this cooling period so let's look at um, geophysical and social impact by region we'll look at Europe the Baltic Sea froze over twice in 1303 and 1306 seven years followed 
by unseasonable cold storms and rains and a rise in the level of the Caspian Sea. The Little Ice Age brought colder winters to parts of Europe and North America. Farms and villages in the Swiss Alps were destroyed by encroaching glaciers during the mid-17th century. Canals and rivers in Great Britain and the Netherlands were frequently frozen deeply enough to support ice skating and winter festivals. The first river, Thames uh, Frost Fair, was in 1608 and the last in 1814. Changes to the bridges and the addition of the Thames uh, embankment affected the river flow and depth, greatly diminishing the possibility of further freezes. I'm sure that was so sad. That's a long, that's a long fucking tradition. You have over 200 years of a, of a frozen river festival and then it just, it ends? That kind of sucks. Do you know what I mean? Like, in this period of change that we are all going through, we're very obviously going through the period of change. Um... It's interesting to look back at, like, the traditions that other people lost, you know. Um, just kind of change in society is not unique. That's, <laughs> that's the, that's all I want to say. Freezing of the Golden Horn and the southern section of the Bosphorus took place in 1622. I don't know what either of those words mean. In 1658, a Swedish army marched across the Great Belt to Denmark to attack Copenhagen. The winter... I guess these are watery things. I'm not sure. The winter of 1794 and 1795 was particularly harsh. The French invasion army under Pichegru was able to march on the frozen rivers of the Netherlands and the Dutch fleet was locked in the ice in Den Helder Harbor. Sea ice surrounding Iceland extended for miles in every direction, closing harbors to shipping. The population of Iceland fell by half, but that may have been caused by skeletal fluorosis after the eruption of Lackey in 1783. I guess that's a, a volcano. Iceland also suffered failures of cereal crops, and people moved away from a grain-based diet, <laughs> and they moved to rotten shark, fermented shark. The Norse colonies in Greenland starved and vanished by the early 15th century as crops failed and livestock could not be maintained through increasingly harsh winters. Greenland was largely cut off by ice from 1410 to the 1720s. Then there's another picture shown of um, winter skating on the main canal of Poppenberg, Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands, in 1825, shortly before the minimum? The fuck is that? By Barth Bartholomeus Johannes van Hove. In his 1995 book, the early climatologist Hubert Lamb said that in many years, snowfall was much heavier than recorded before or since, and the snow lay on the ground for many months longer than it does today. In Lisbon, Portugal, snowstorms were much more frequent than today. So that's crazy. One winter in the 17th century produced eight snowstorms in a place that is warm. I would get from everything I know about Portugal, which isn't much. Many springs and summers were cold and wet, but with great variability between years and groups of years. Crop practices throughout Europe had to be altered to adapt to the shortened, less reliable growing season. And there were many years of dearth and famine, such as the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317, but that may have been before the Little Ice Age. According to Elizabeth Ewan and Janae Nugent, famines in France, uh, 1693 to 1694, Norway, 1695 to 1696, and Sweden, 1696 to 1697, <laughs> claimed roughly 10% of the population of each country. In Estonia and Finland, in 1696-97, Losses have been estimated at a fifth and a third of the national populations, respectively. 
viticulture disappeared from some northern regions and storms caused serious flooding and loss of life. I don't know what viticulture is. I feel like I have to... <sighs> oh, just wine growing. Okay. Like growing the grapes or whatever. Viticulture. I have never heard that word before. Now I have to fucking find where I was. Um... <clears throat> Some of them resulted in permanent loss of large areas of land from the Danish, German, and Dutch coasts. The violin maker Antonio Stradivari uh, produced his instruments during the Little Ice Age. The colder climate is proposed to have caused the wood used in his violins to be denser than in warmer periods, contributing to the tone of his instruments. Interesting, okay. According to the science historian James Burke, the period inspired such novelties in everyday life as the widespread use of buttons and buttonholes and knitting of custom-made undergarments to better cover and insulate the body. Chimneys were invented to replace open fires in the center of communal halls, so allowing houses with multiple rooms, separation of masters from servants, and thus the development of social classes. Holy shit. That's really interesting. The Little Ice Age, it appears to be a book, by anthropologist Brian Fagan of the University of California at Santa Barbara, tells of the plight of European peasants during the 13th hundred to eighteen hundred and fifty chill famines hypothermia bread riots and the rise of despotic leaders brutalizing an increasingly dispirited peasantry in the late 17th century agriculture had dropped off dramatically alpine villagers lived on bread made from ground nutshells mixed with barley and oat flour this is all <laughs> conjuring really specific images to my mind of things that have happened in the past year. <laughs> Historian Wolfgang Beringer has linked intensive witch hunting episodes in Europe to agricultural failures during the Little Ice Age. Wow. So this time period, I mean, it was a huge time to call it a period feels like a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> age feels more accurate it was a long time and it completely changed how humans behave on earth as opposed to what the humans on mars <laughs> sometimes the things that i say i don't know the Frigid Golden Age by, is also a book by environmental historian Dagomar de Groot. That's one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Of Georgetown University. <coughs> by contrast, reveals that some societies thrived while others faltered during the Little Ice Age. In particular, the Little Ice Age transformed environments around the Dutch Republic, the precursor to the present-day Netherlands so that they were easier to exploit in commerce and conflict. The Dutch were resilient, even adaptive, in the face of weather that devastated neighboring countries. Merchants exploited harvest failures, military commanders took advantage of shifting wind patterns, and investors developed technologies that helped them profit from the cold. The 17th century golden age of the Republic therefore owed much of the flexibility much to the flexibility of the Dutch in coping with a changing climate. Cultural responses. Ooh, that's... Uh, let's skip ahead to something I'm more interested in, which is depictions of winter in European painting. Um, the first painting we have is the Reverend Robert Walker skating on Duddingston Lock attributed to Henry Rayburn from the 1790s. William James Burroughs' analysis analyzes, analyzes, <laughs> analyzes the depiction of winter in paintings, as does Hans Neuberger. <coughs> 
Burroughs asserts that it occurred almost entirely from 1565 to 1665 and was associated with the climatic decline from 1550 onwards. Burroughs claims that there had been almost no depictions of winter in art, and he hypothesizes that the unusually harsh winter of 1565 inspired great artists to depict highly original images, and that the decline in such paintings was a combination of the theme having been fully explored and milder winters interrupting the flow of painting. And when did I say that uh, Hunter in the Snow was from? I believe it was 1650. Uh, Jesus Christ, it's hard to say those dates over and over again. 1565, that's so interesting. Wow. We're making connections, guys. So this, so 1565 was a particularly cold winter. And that is, I'm not good at math, obviously, but I want to say that that's kind of like, uh, it's not quite in the center, right? The center would be, it's close to this, to dead smack in the middle of the ice age. Some, somewhat. Um... Wintry scenes, which entail technical difficulties in painting, have been regularly and well handled since the early 15th century by artists in illuminated manuscript cycles showing the labors of the months, typically placed on the calendar pages of Books of Hours. January and February are typically shown as snowy, as in February in the famous cycle in the Les Très Riches de Duc. De Berry, <laughs> painted 1412 to 1416 and illustrated below. Since landscape uh, painting had not yet developed as an independent genre in art, the absence of other winter scenes is not remarkable. On the other hand, snowy winter landscapes and stormy seascapes in particular became artistic genres in the Dutch Republic during the coldest and stormiest decades of the Little Ice Age. At the time when the Little Ice Age was at its height, Dutch observations and reconstructions of similar weather in the past caused artists consciously what Dutch observations and reconstructions of similar weather in the past caused artists consciously paint <sighs> caused artists to consciously paint local manifestations of a similar, of a cooler, stormier climate. This was a break from European conventions as Dutch paintings and realistic landscapes depicted scenes from everyday life, which most modern scholars believe were full of symbolic messages and metaphors that would have been clear to contemporary customers. Then we have The Hunters in the Snow by Peter Bruegel the Elder, 1565, the famous winter landscape paintings by Peter Bruegel the Elder, such as Hunters in the Snow, are all thought to have been painted in 1565. Okay. His son, Peter Bruegel the Younger, who lived from 1564 to 1638, also painted many snowy landscapes, but according to Burroughs, he slavishly copied his father's designs. The derivative nature of so much of this work makes it difficult to draw any definite conclusions about the influence of the winters between 1570 and 1600. That's a really like a delayed, you know, burn on this guy. <laughs> um, there's another painting, Winter Landscape with Ice Skaters, circa 1608 from Hendrik Averkamp. Burroughs says that snowy subjects returned to Dutch Golden Age painting with works by Hendrik Averkamp from 1609 onwards. There is then a hiatus between 1627 and 1640 before the main period of such subjects from the 1640s to the 1660s. I am like exhausted by reading all of these dates. Truly, it is wearing me out to read all of that. I can't imagine that it's exciting to listen to me read that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we could get into, you know, something that I was thinking about is that um, 
I feel like I've been reading from the most boring history book ever. Jesus Christ. It is interesting. You know, this is... Okay, let's break away from that a little bit. We need to we need to have some real talk. Um, <clears throat> what I... What I want in this podcast... You know, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a historian. All that kind of stuff. I'm... A regular person of course and I do the same thing that you do which is I get really interested in a topic and I start to look stuff up because I realize I know something I have some piece of information I've got the knowledge about the little ice age I know that it influenced two pieces of work that I'm familiar with then everything else around it is blank so when I learn a little bit more, I'm more invested. So then I go digging. And of course, you go to Wikipedia to get a general idea. I don't know that Wikipedia is really designed to be read <laughs> like a book, you know. Um, but you kind of... Well, you, I, whatever. I read enough so that I feel like I have filled in enough of the blanks and then I feel pretty satisfied once I feel like I've got a good overall picture of this thing that I'm you know my brain has kind of latched onto and is curious about then I kind of feel like okay like I've I got it you know and so I think when I'm reading all these dates out and blah 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 it's kind of like Part of me is feeling like, oh, I have to educate, whatever, like educate you. I have to present something that's educational to you or interesting or informative. But I'm not, who am I? You know, I'm. this is not something that I know anything about. I'm doing some research and I'm doing it kind of in real time, you know, which is another thing that I find interesting about this podcast is being able to do things in real time and not uh, having a scripted thing. I, I really like to think of this as kind of an unscripted podcast, which I know a lot of podcasts are unscripted. I mean, certainly when it comes to like, oh, God. I don't, I was going to say when it comes, like, I'll listen to podcasts about reality shows I like. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think that e most people, when they go to record a podcast, they have, like, notes about what they want to talk about that day. And certainly if you're discussing a TV show, you've got, you've taken notes on the show so that you remember what happened in it. And um, the, obviously there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I just know that. It's just not going to feel authentic to me if I do that. It's just not going to feel good to me. You know? It's going to... I'm going to read it the same way that I'm reading a Wikipedia page. And I just don't... I'm not interested in doing that. And honestly, at this point... <laughs> I, I feel like I kind of got... You know... I got it. I got what you know, generally what was going on, the time period. I do kind of want to read about the medieval warm period. And, you know, I mean, it's really interesting that the Little Ice Age, like, affected just how a society functioned and how homes were built. And, you know, of course it affected, well, it didn't, it did affect the population, but I guess the plague, the kind of, which was in the period before, that affected the population more, I would say. Um, and so I think it would be cool to have that information also, you know. Um, so the last article that I'm not going to read from, but I do think that it would be interesting for you to kind of connect this whole thing with the Little Ice Age and the uh, the climate change that we're experiencing now and try to figure out how those two, you know, the Little Ice Age kind of 
was a, let's say, a naturally occurring climate change, and it differs from the climate change that we are experiencing now. So there's an article that can be found on eos.org, eos.org, and the article is called, The Little Ice Age Wasn't Global, But Current Climate Change Is, and that's by Javier Barbuzano, and that was published on July 24th, 2019. It's a good article. It basically says what um, we already covered, which is basically the difference is that current cl- climate change is happening globally at the same time. And the Little Ice Age had, it wasn't as, obviously it was significant for these people. It was significant. It was a significant difference from the warming that they had experienced, that the planet had experienced before that. But it wasn't... Um, tremendously significant although it was I mean it sounds like it was at some periods it sounds like it was freezing rivers I know that even uh where I'm from uh in New York you know I mean the Hudson River runs along the whole like runs throughout New York and the Hudson River used to freeze over in the winter and I kind of want to I think that Niagara Falls used to freeze. Did Niagara Falls freeze? Um, oh, okay. So over the years, Niagara Falls, this is from worldatlas.com, does Niagara Falls freeze? Over the years, Niagara Falls has experienced freezing in some seasons. However, most of the times the falls only freeze partially. Okay. So, um... You know, it definitely was cold, colder than it is now at 100%. Um, and now my brain feels <laughs> kind of fried after all that talking. And um, I had to take a little break there because I, I found myself getting really just irritable um with like all the reading <laughs> it really wore me out I only had one cup of coffee I don't know you know maybe the, the quarantine element is getting to me a little bit um and I I mean I have been recording every day I, I don't feel exhausted by the recording it's not like I feel some sort of um significant need to put something out every day I mean from everything I've heard you're you're not really supposed to like put content out every day like content of this nature um but I'm just doing because I want to and I have the time and I've got the ideas if I didn't have the idea I wouldn't uh I wouldn't be doing it you know but it is something that helps me kind of pass the time in quarantine honestly um so I felt, I don't know, I just got kind of annoyed at the end there. But, um, and then my husband came in and interrupted me. So I had to stop anyway. I feel like we learned a lot. There, of course, there's a lot more that, you know, it was a long fucking period. It was a, ran from the 1300s to 1850, roughly. So you could talk, you know, we could get into each country's experience. You know, it's like, it's a huge topic that could be covered. And, um, so to try and, I think that was a little overwhelming too, to try and present that information, like in one episode, maybe was more of an undertaking than I had anticipated. Um, but you know, I did my best. I mean, I didn't, I did my best for like a a one day like research, you know. (laughs) Um, I hope you found it informative. I can't decide exactly what the episode for tomorrow will be. It might be the medieval warm age and it might be more specifically how the little ice age affected art 
at that time period. Um, so we'll see. I'll probably cover both of those, but I'm not sure which one will be tomorrow. So thank you so much for listening, as always. And I hope that you have a, a great uh, a great day. If you're in a place where it's supposed to be cold in winter, I hope it's cold for you today. And um, talk to you later. Bye.